I want to share a story with you about Sue Ellen's and my encounter with another church. When I left ministry at Abundant Life in Wilmington back in 2010, I was out of ministry for a while, and we began attending a church, a Manchester Christian Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Now, I had attended several conferences there, was impressed with the ministry, and so Sue Ellen and I decided to go. The pastor had been there for 30 years, and, and the church had created a facility and atmosphere that was very comfortable for unchurched people to come in, and the ministry had grown to about 1,000 people. And, and i share with you, that's kind of what Grace Point is seeking to do as they come here to partner with us. They're talking about creating a welcoming center where our Ellis room is, back where people can come in, grab a coffee or a water, something to snack on, engage in conversation, get some information about the church in a very relaxed setting. That's extremely important in our world today because people are so unsure about the church, unfamiliar with the church, unfamiliar with who Jesus is, and that's part of creating an environment where they can come and feel comfortable. Well, the first service we attended in September of 2010 was the first service for their new pastor, their current pastor, who's been with them now for 13 years. He came from Texas, and he instituted a program from the very beginning called Pray for One. And he taught the people to pray this simple prayer every day. God, give me one person to share your love with every day. God, give me one person to share your love with every day. Now, the church was ready for that, and they embraced that simple prayer. And you know what happened? 12, 13, 14 months later, the church had grown to over 2,000, and they were moving from two services to four Sunday services. And by Christmas 2011, they were approaching 2,500 people in, in attendance. They were seeing people come to faith. They were baptizing 10 to 20 people every month or more. It was the most remarkable thing I'd seen in any church in New England, and I've gone to church in New England all my life. Why did that happen? They had created, first, a welcoming and safe environment for the unchurched and disenfranchised to come in. The congregation felt good about their church and comfortable enough to make, invite neighbors and friends. But then they began praying for one. Give me one person to share your love with every day. And as they began to pray, a neighbor, a coworker, a family member, or some casual acquaintance day after day, they would begin to have opportunities for conversation, and they'd share why they loved their church about Jesus, and they would invite them to a service, and the people came, and they kept on praying for people day after day, week after week, month after month. You know, I don't know, and they've been doing it to this very day. I don't know how many people they're attending now, but I do know this now 13 years later. They have six campuses, 11 services, and four streaming services every week. And they're continuing to baptize people. And they changed their name from Manchester Christian to One Church, reflecting the value of praying for one. Praying for one. Why did it work? Well, we live in a culture, by and large, that rejects the Christian message, the absolute claims of Jesus. In our times, fewer and fewer people are going to church. The younger generation really knows nothing about Jesus. The world around saw the many church scandals, and, 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 and they backed away. Their thinking and feelings about Jesus and the church fundamentally need to change. And ultimately, God is the only one who can change a person's heart and mind. 
So they began to pray to God to do just that. It wasn't just one person praying. It wasn't just the pastor praying. But it was the whole community that embraced that kind of praying. And people's hearts and minds began to change. And that's what the story of the rich young ruler is telling us today. You know, this very successful businessman, religious leader, came to Jesus sincerely seeking what he needed to do to inherit of eternal life, to go to heaven. And Jesus tells him to obey the last six commandments and how you treat your neighbor and other people. And Jesus sees in sincerity, and the text says Jesus loved him for it. But he tells him one thing. He needs to go and sell all that he has and give it to the poor. Why? Because he loved his money more than he loved God. That's a heart problem. Then Jesus looks at his disciples and makes these comments. How difficult will it be for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier to find a needle in a haystack than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were blown away, as we talked about two weeks ago, because they always assumed that a rich person had God's blessing. Why did Jesus basically say it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? Because it's a matter of the heart. Think about where we've been in this series. In October 1st, we talked about how God is more interested in our heart than in our external actions. You know, that's why Jesus redefined the, the Ten Commandments. He said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you hate in your heart, you've already committed murder. All those commandments are supposed to reflect what's going on in our heart. The following we talked about sin. And we said sin is more than just breaking a commandment of God's law. It's fundamentally misplaced love in the heart. That's the root of it. And so this young man loved God more than he loved money, more than he loved God. And was unwilling to use his resources to help people. And then in October 15th, we talked about how money is the ultimate trap that can capture our heart in ways that we don't understand. And we're not even aware of it. You know, why do we get envious at what others have? Why do we always want something more, something new? If we're sad or down or had a bad day, why is often our solution to go shopping? What all those things are saying to us is that money has a hold on our lives and we think somehow money will make us happy. It's an indication that perhaps we love money more than we love God. So we don't use our money to help others. We don't give generously to God and support God's work through the church. So the reality of what Jesus is talking about here, it's all about the heart. And Jesus is telling us that there is a war going on in people's hearts and minds. It's a war between God's values and the best way to live and the values of the world around us. It's a war between God's design for us and our own selfish desires and plans. So the first thing this text tells us today is the great war today is for the hearts and minds of people. You know, as tragic as the battles that are being fought in the Middle East or in Ukraine or many other places, in, in, in some ways, they're not the most important battles being fought today. You know, the last official war that the United States fought was World War II. That's the last military engagement where Congress declared war on Japan and Germany after Pearl Harbor. And what happened? 
Everybody in the country sacrificed to see victory. It wasn't just soldiers on the field fighting the battles. Gas and food supplies were rationed to provide for troops. Factories that produced commercial products converted over to military production. Women who had run the home now went to work in factories and a host of other jobs. Everybody sacrificed and worked towards a common goal, and it brought victory. You know, all the major battles we've fought since Korean conflict, Vietnam conflict, the first Gulf conflict, Iraq, Afghanistan, were not wars declared by Congress. The only people who sacrificed were the soldiers who went and the families who lost loved ones. The country as a whole didn't sacrifice. We just continued to live and do what we wanted to do at home. We made our choices. We did whatever we want, even though there was a war being fought. And eventually we grew tired of it and we pulled out or we quit. As a culture, we didn't sacrifice across the board the way we did in World War II. We fought armed conflicts, but did what we wanted to do at home. There was no sacrifice. And in many ways, that is how the church often approaches its mission. We don't realize we are at war, and the result is we don't bring a level of commitment and sacrifice to the battle for God's people's hearts and minds. You know, we don't like to talk about war images in Scripture, but most of those images about battles are really talking about battles for the hearts and minds of people. Paul writes about his own life in 2 Timothy 4.7. He says, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And what he's saying, the battle he fought was to keep his heart and mind and life focused on what God wants for him and how he wants them to live and what he wants them to do. To young Timothy, Paul wrote, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. So for Paul, serving Jesus was a battle. It would be the same for Timothy. It requires sacrifice and intentionality not to give up, not to lose the focus on God's purposes and values. And, and, and what Scripture is saying is followers of Jesus were called into a war. And any war that requires hard work and sacrifice, if there's going to be a victory, you know, I'm sure every one of you at some point in time can point to some struggle in your life that you've had to do when you struggle with what is right, what does Jesus call you to do. There's an internal conflict in all of us in our hearts and minds about what it means to follow Jesus. And then you think about the people who don't know Jesus. You know, and if there's a war, what's the assumption? There has to be an enemy, right? If there's a war. Peter writes, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. He's seeking to throw us off course. Satan confronted Jesus in the wilderness before he began his ministry. Why? He wanted to lead Jesus away from what God wanted. He sought to challenge Jesus' thinking and lead him away from God's purposes. Paul summed it up this way in Ephesians 6. Our fight is not against people on earth, but against the rulers and authorities and powers of this world darkness, against spiritual powers of evil in the heavenly world. You know, and, and I think you all know and I know at times how we struggle as followers of Jesus to, to do what is right, to follow God's precepts. But think about all the people in the world who don't understand the first thing about Jesus. With the world we live in saying to people, do what you want, doesn't matter, do what you, makes you happy, it doesn't matter what you believe. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, the devil 
who rules this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. They cannot see the light of the good news, the good news about the glory of Christ, who is exactly like God. You see what is being said here, there's a great war being waged today. It's for the hearts and minds of people, just as it was for the heart of that rich young ruler back in Jesus' day. There's an enemy who opposes Jesus, who corrupts people's thinking, who blinds their minds to what is truth and the best way to live. So Jesus tells his disciples that it's almost impossible for a rich man to follow him or to enter the kingdom of God. And they're blown away because they think if, if you're wealthy, God has been blessing their lives. And then he says, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus is telling us, we may not be able to change a person's heart, how he thinks and feels, but God can. And so the second thing Jesus is telling us is God changes people's hearts and minds through prayer. That's how he changes them. That's how we access the power of God. God alone changes their hearts by his spirit through the power of prayer. Now Paul makes this link very clear in Ephesians 6. You know, the link for the war of people's hearts and minds in prayer. And he writes, accept God's salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, Pray in the Spirit at all times with all kinds of prayers, asking for everything you need. To do this, you must always be ready and never give up. Take the sword, pray. What Paul is saying, the weapons of the warfare in this world is prayer. And he says, pray without giving up, never giving up, being ready. In other words, take it and sacrifice it. Get involved. You're in a war. Don't be halfway committed. You have to fight, and the way we fight is through prayer. Do you think of prayer as a weapon of warfare? Do you realize that we're in a war, a war for people's hearts and minds, a war for people's eternal lives? And the primary weapon God gives us is prayer. Now, Jesus uses another analogy that's not about war, but it's about producing fruit. And, and, and the way for that fruit to grow is through prayer. Now, fruit in the verse I'm reading is not about character qualities. It's about seeing people come to faith in Jesus. So he says this in John 15. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit. Now, what is lasting fruit? It's people who come to Jesus that have eternal life. So that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. Jesus is telling his disciples and his followers today that his purpose for our lives is to see people come to faith in Jesus. It's a form of the Great Commission, go into all the world, which is in a plaque here behind the baptistry, preach the gospel, teaching to observe, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Lasting fruit is about people who follow Jesus and have eternal life. Prayer is the way to see that happen. Jesus is saying, I have a mission for you, so pray. Pray for people to come to know Jesus. Pray that I would embrace my responsibility to share for Jesus. Pray that God would give me one person to share your love with. And, and, and as people embrace those prayers, he answers those prayers when his people are, are serious about the mission God gives them engaging in the battle. Let me remind you again about that one church. 
They created a welcoming environment for people who were unchurched and disenfranchised. And the church as a whole entered into the battle when they began to pray, God, give me one person to share your love with every day. And that recognizes these simple truths. They implicitly recognize there's a war going on in the hearts and minds of people. The people of the church are taking responsibility to share Jesus with other people. It's not just the pastor or the staff. Everyone's taking on the responsibility to say, give me one person to share. Give me one person to invite. Give me one person to share the love of Jesus. And third, they know prayer is the key because they see God change people's hearts and minds. You know, as I was preparing for this message, John Piper, a well-known pastor and author, pointed out to me a specific example of how prayer changed the hearts and minds of people who were enemies of the gospel and even of people who were followers of Jesus. You know, if you read Paul's letters throughout the New Testament, all through his ministry, at, at, towards the end, he's talking about wanting to go back to Jerusalem to bring an offering to help the Christians there who were suffering in Jerusalem, experiencing famine, but everybody, including Paul, knew that to return to Jerusalem would be extremely dangerous for him because there were many enemies there. The Jews hated him because they felt like he had turned away from them in preaching Jesus. And many of the Jewish Christians were upset with Paul because he was preaching to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. So at the very end of the book of Romans, he writes to the church at Rome asking for prayers for two things. He says this, Brothers and sisters, I beg you to help me in my work by praying to God for me. Do this because of our Lord Jesus and the love that the Holy Spirit gives us. Pray that I will be saved from the non-believers in Judea and that this help I will bring to Jerusalem will please God's people there. He was asking for two things. Protect me from the unchurched, the unbelievers, and a good reception from the mostly Jewish believers that were there who may be upset with Paul for advocating for the Gentiles. So Paul recognizes that prayer changes people's hearts and minds. And the rest of the story is told in Acts 21, what happens? And Acts 21 tells the story of what happened when he falls and when he rides in Jerusalem. He's greeted by hostile Jewish crowds who seize him and beat him. But then we're told that a Roman commander was told about what was happening. And he took this report seriously. He sent centurions to seek out what was going on, to investigate. When the Roman soldiers showed up, the crowd stopped beating Paul. The prayers of the Roman Christians 1,300 miles away were answered. God influenced the will of the person who informed the commander, the will of the Roman commander to investigate, the will of the mob to stop beating. And their prayers were again answered in chapter 23 because Paul was going to be transferred from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And they had planned to seize and kill Paul in that journey. But God, again, God influenced the will of a little boy to be in the right place to hear about the plot, to have the courage to tell Paul, but he also influenced the centurion to bring the boy to the commander and influenced the commander to take the boy seriously and provide an armed escort. The prayers of the Roman Christians moved the hearts and wills of people who weren't necessarily believers to accomplish his purposes. Then in reference to Jewish believers, at the end of Acts 21, it tells us that when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, we arrived in Jerusalem, the Lord's followers gladly welcomed us. Acts goes on to tell us that 
Paul related how God had used them to share the Jesus with the Gentiles, and the Jewish Christians rejoiced and glorified God for what he was doing through Paul among the Gentiles. The cultural and religious prejudices against Gentiles were completely forgotten. Prayer changes people's hearts and minds. Only God can really change the will of a person, their innermost thoughts, emotions, and prejudices. And so the last thought on prayer is our primary means to see the kingdom of God grow and prosperity is simply this. You know, prayer becomes more effective and powerful when it's embraced by the community. It is not just the work of one or two people. Now, history will tell us movements of prayer, movements of God always start with one or two people praying, but then they're embraced by many other people who join in praying for God's work. The Manchester Christian Church story happened because most of the church community embraced the concept of praying for one. We just saw the community of believers in Rome were praying for Paul and God answered their prayers. There is more power when a community of people embrace praying together for a common purpose. And why is that? You know, the question is why do we have group prayer meetings or why ask for a community of believers to pray for this one thing? Paul, in his letter to, at, to the church at Corinth, he wrote this on a number of occasions, asking that they would pray as a community for his protection and success in ministry. And he said to them this, We have put our hope in Jesus, and he will save us again, and you can help us with your prayers. Then many people will give thanks for us that God blessed us because of their many prayers. Paul is saying here, that the more people that are praying for a thing, the more thanks and honor God will get when he answers the prayer. Jesus tells us that the divine purpose of prayer is to glorify God. He says this in John 14. Whoever, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So the more people that are praying and depending on God for his grace and power, the more God will be honored and glorified. This is especially true when the prayer reflects God's will in a direct way. And there's nothing greater than to be praying that God would use us to see people come to faith in Jesus. Because that's the ultimate mission of the church. So when Jesus spoke to his disciples, you know, he, he said, with man it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. He's telling us three things. The great war today is for the hearts and minds of people. That's the most significant battle in this world right now because they are blind to the truth about God and God has to open their hearts and minds and God's people need to take that seriously and invest their time and attention to sacrifice, to fight the battle, to pray day by day. The war has eternal consequences for the people around us. Second, God changes people's hearts and minds through prayer. Prayer is the way that we access the power of God to change people's hearts and minds because God is the one who changes the heart. And then finally, we have to believe that God will win the war. He's sovereign. You know, God will accomplish his purposes. We said that in the very beginning of the service. If we don't believe God will win the war, we won't pray urgently. If we don't believe that God will accomplish his purposes or that he can change people's hearts, we won't take prayer seriously. All through Scripture, God promises to change people's hearts and to raise up people that love and serve him. That's the main business he's in from the very beginning of the Bible. You know, 
in the book of Deuteronomy, in the heart of the Mosaic law, God made this promise. He said this, and I will, oh, he said this, the Lord your God will change your heart and the hearts of all your descendants so that you will love him with all your heart, soul, and so you may live. That's what he said. He promised to the Israelites when he gave them the law. He's going to change your hearts so that you love him. When Israel began to turn away from God, the prophets began to speak about how God would change their hearts. Listen, he said this, I will give them one heart, a new spirit, I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh so that they will obey my commandments and truly be my people. The prophets say God's going to change the hearts. That was the same kind of prayer that runs through the New Testament. The early church always spoke about how God would open people's hearts to follow Jesus. In Acts 16, 14, Luke describes how Lydia's conversion, he says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Paul writes words of encouragement to Timothy saying to pray and gently encourage those who are unbelievers to consider God's truth and then says, perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. All through Scripture, there are these promises that God is going to change people's hearts and draw them, people, to himself in every nation, every tongue, every culture in the world. Way back in Genesis, God promised Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. Psalm 86, David says this, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. God's going to change people's hearts in every nation. In other words, he's, he's, he's going to reach out and through all the world, no matter where it is, no matter what situation, no matter what culture, he's going to change people's hearts. Revelation ends with the promise that when Jesus returns, there will be people who follow Jesus from every tribe, every language, every people, and nation in the world that God has created. Why? Because God's going to change people's hearts and minds and draw people to him. So they will be there to rule when Jesus returns. God will win the war. So it behooves us to enter into the war for people's hearts and minds and pray fervently that we would share God's love with the people around us. Prayer is God's weapon of choice. Praying that we would have the heart to share God's love with others and let God change our hearts and minds. You know, in this series, Faith Fundamentals of today, I'm sharing with you kind of a summary of everything I think I have learned that is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, it's taken me a lifetime to come to appreciate and understand these truths. I wish I understood them in the way I understand them today 40 or 50 years ago. Because I believe they're at the heart of the gospel, what it means to truly follow Jesus. Have I prayed fervently every day for the opportunity to share the love of Jesus with one person every day? No. But it's never too late to start. It's never too late. It's never too late to start. You know, if I was to start pastoring in a local church all over again, that would be a prayer that we would talk about probably every Sunday until everybody in the church got it. <laughs> because it's foundational to what the church is supposed to be about. Seeing people come to understand and know Jesus and how God loves him. But we only embrace that purpose when we ourselves fully experience and understand what Jesus has done for us at the cross and the sacrifices he has made 
for us to know that we're forgiven and eternally loved. Then and only then will we realize that God wants everyone to experience the same love and grace. But we have to realize everything in this world fights against recognizing who Jesus is. Our own selfish nature wants to be in control. Satan, who seeks to blind us to God's truth and the culture around us that seeks to blind our hearts and minds. So we're involved in a war far more than any important than any military conflict in the world. God calls us to pursue his purposes, to make sacrifices, to commit to praying that the people we know in this life would open up their hearts and minds to the truth about Jesus. You think about it, that's really a pretty simple thing, isn't it? It means that we just, what, take five minutes, ten minutes, a moment here, a moment there, at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, say, God, Leave me to one person to share your love. That's not a lot of time consumption, but it is a commitment to a purpose. So we need to remember what Jesus said to the disciples in his account of the rich young ruler. With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. That is a call to pray.